All right, well, you can turn over in your Bibles to Second or First Second Thessalonians, sorry. <laughs> Second Thessalonians, chapter one. And we've been going through our study of Second Thessalonians now for several weeks, uh, nine weeks in all. And uh, this is our second week looking at our two verses, 11 and 12, as we conclude chapter 1. And I just want to remind you that here Paul is letting the Thessalonian church, this young, vibrant church, he's letting them know that he is praying for them. And he has been praying for them. Um, But now he lets them know how he's been praying for them. So this isn't so much a prayer that you would pray. That's not the purpose of this text. It's really a a template, you could say, a a blueprint, a prescription, really, that Paul gives us for biblical prayer. And we introduced this last week, and we talked about how today in our world, so many times even as believers, we get caught up in praying for things that may not be the right things. And we look at prayer kind of as a, you know, rub the the body and the genie comes out and we get what we want kind of a thing. And that's not the purpose of prayer. And we notice that, that Paul here is not giving them a prayer, but he's giving them six elements or six prescriptions, you could say, for this, for this prayer that he's been praying for them. And, and the six elements are precept, plan, pleasure, power, purpose, and provision. And last week in our introduction, we got through the first two points, but it's important to realize that we don't always pray as we are instructed in Scripture. And that's very important to understand. I don't think we teach on this enough. Um, you look at Paul's example here, his prescription of prayer in verse 11 and 12, and you just follow along, and you can remain seated as I read this for you. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, That our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Then verse 12, so that, purpose clause, why does he do this? The name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask you to... Bless this word to our hearts as we continue to unfold these two verses. And Lord, give us a proper biblical perspective on prayer. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul understood one of the most faithful things, responsibilities that a pastor could do is not just teaching a sermon once a week, but it's faithfully praying for his flock. And it's not so much just praying for things for them to have a nice job and a a new house or a new car or anything like that. No, I think the end goal of the apostles' prayer here for believers was their what? Their spiritual identity, their spiritual growth. There's nothing that would warm an elder or a pastor's heart than to know that his people are growing, they're thriving spiritually. And so much in churches today, there's too much emphasis on all the external stuff. Well, what's going on in your heart is what Paul is curious about. That's what he's praying for. His prayers here are not 
some aimless thing that just wanders off into nowhere. It's not containing mean, meaningless generalities as you often hear in prayer. But he, he kind of gets right to it. He, he points right to the, gets right to the point. And that's a lot like the Apostle Paul. He was that kind of a guy. And these kind of prayers you can see throughout his epistles. If you turn over to Colossians chapter 1, I'll just read one of them here. These are actual prayers that Paul was praying for them. But if you look at the content of these words that he's about to, we're about to read, you'll, you'll see what I mean. It's not always just superficial, oh, give him food and give him clothes. No, he's not really worried about that stuff because all that stuff's temporary anyway. He's worried about the eternal. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, and then also verses 9 to 11. Verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Then jump down to verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled not with good food, but with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner, what? Worthy of the Lord. We talked about this last week. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That's just... One example of Paul's many prayers, another one is found a book before 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We, we read this when we went through 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. Paul writes this, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Verse 11, Now may the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase, he's praying for them, and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. Verse 13, so that he, God, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You don't hear any mention here of clothes or houses or food. Same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul prays, he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in prayers day and night. You could say honestly that Paul was what? He was a praying individual. He believed in prayer. Or the little book of Philemon. 
He writes in verse 4, he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. See, Paul was constantly praying. He was constantly, you could say, petitioning the Lord, for the maturity of his people, of the people that he play, they play, the Lord placed under his care. Why? Because he understood things like sanctification. He understood things like justification. And all those things only come through God's sovereign grace, but not apart from human obedience. So his epistles are filled with a lot of commands, a lot of prohibitions, a lot of exhortations, a lot of sharing God's sovereign purposes, prayers, and obedience. And all those are necessary for our sanctification. They're all necessary ingredients that God uses in our lives each day to make us more like Christ. So last week we we asked this basic question, Because we believe that God is sovereign, amen? Amen. We proved that last week. We went through scripture after scripture. God is a sovereign God. He's in control of everything. Well, the question is, then why pray? Why pray about anything? If God's got it all worked out, we can just go home and turn on the tube and wait till he comes back. If God is sovereign over everything, why pray for anything? And we answered that question. We, we, We said the Bible strongly affirms God's absolute sovereignty, but we also pointed out that the Bible also teaches that God's sovereignty does not negate our human responsibility, and we showed you how, and you can listen to that message through the app. We showed you that there's a need for a proper understanding of God's sovereignty that does not lead us into some passive resignation, but rather into active participation in our faith. God may choose to hear and change the course of events through our prayers without even altering his sovereign purpose. How that works, I don't know. If you figure it out, let me know. That's that's a God thing. But the amazing, incomprehensible reality of such provision is that it is God's will all along. A good definition of prayer that I just use personally in my own life is simply this. Prayer is a constant, daily attitude of dependence upon God for everything. That's what prayer is. Prayer isn't just when you fall to your knees before you go to bed and say your little prayer or the food before, bless the Lord for these I guess, what you're about to receive. You know, that kind of deal. I mean, that's prayer. But no, I think prayer is a constant attitude. It's not just an action. It's an attitude of dependence upon God every day, 24-7, for everything. That's why the Bible says Paul can say, pray what? Always. Pray without, without what's he saying in, in Thessalonians? Without ceasing. 
One time one of my grandkids asked me, Grandpa, well, do, you, do you pray when you're driving? What? Yeah, hello. There's no better time to pray than when you're driving, especially here in this crazy state. And then they said, would you close your eyes? Which I thought was a good question. See, we, we, we have a misunderstanding of what prayer is, beloved. Prayer is a constant attitude of dependence upon God for everything. And so last week we looked at God's precept, pray. He says in verse 11, to this end we always pray for you. That needs to be part of every believer's life. We need to be praying people. Somehow the church has lost that somewhere. Maybe we've grown too comfortable in our own ingenuity and our own abilities to do things. We don't need God for anything until something bad happens. Oh, then we're all about prayer. Then we're calling, oh, you got to start the prayer chain, you know. We should always be praying. And by the way, men, just a little advertisement here. In the coming weeks, we're going to start a prayer time before the women's prayer time. They pray every Thursday morning at 9 o'clock, right? 9 o'clock. And they have a gathering over in the fellowship hall, and that's open to any women. And I often wonder, well, where are the men at? <laughs> well, one of our dear brothers said, you know what? I want to start meeting on Thursday morning, 6 o'clock, 6 to 7, whatever it might be. And so, men, we invite you out. I don't know when this is going to start. I don't know if it's this next week or the week after, so we'll let you know. But you know what? We need to be men of prayer. We need to be men of prayer. We need to anticipate that God is going to answer our prayers. So that's the the precept for prayer. But then we looked at God's plan, and he says there that our God may make you worthy of his calling. And we we delved into this deeply, and we're not going to go into it again, but we talked about that word worthy. He's able to make you worthy. It's amazing how God takes something that's not worth anything. We're unworthy of everything. And God makes us worthy of his blessing. He makes us worthy of heaven. And that's through the the work of Christ on the cross. And it's a worthiness that comes with our calling. It's his calling. Notice it says his calling. You don't call yourself to be a Christian. God calls you to be a believer. That word calling there refers to the irresistible call that results in salvation. This is what Paul is speaking of. And in pretty much all of the epistles in the New Testament, when you see the word call or calling, it's in view of that irresistible Infallible result of salvation in somebody's life. It's not the kind of call where Jesus in the gospel says, many are called, but few are chosen. Different kind of calling. That's a different kind of calling. That's just a gospel call. That's where we go out in the world and we call sinners to what? To repent. Unbelievers are called to believe. Unsaved people are called to be saved. It's not used that way in any of the epistles. It's always used 
in a way that theologians call the efficacious call, the effective calling to salvation. In other words, it's going to happen. It's used for that time when God saves you. Your calling is the time when, when God called you, when he, he, he allowed you to understand the reality of your need as a sinner before a holy God for forgiveness of your sin. And you felt conviction of the Holy Spirit come upon you, and you said, man, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need to fix this. Guess what? You can't. You can't. Only God can through Christ. That's why he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you. The perfect God-man. He lived a life 30-some years here on the earth. Was born in his infant child, raised up. And then he went to the cross, willingly. We're coming up on Resurrection Sunday. And inevitably, prior to Resurrection Sunday, you always have a lot of things on TV that portray Jesus as this poor, suffering man from Galilee. Oh, look at what they did to Jesus. Boo-hoo. That's not reality. Do you know Jesus chose to go to the cross? Nobody killed him. He gave up his life, the Bible says. No one took it from him. This was all preordained in the plan of God. There was no backup plan. There didn't need to be. And so we don't need to look at the death of Christ that way. We should celebrate the death of Christ, that he was willing to give his life for such as us, sinners, without any hope, without any way of earning our salvation. Christ said, you know what? I'll earn it for you. I'll go and I'll die. I'll stretch out my arms even though I never did anything wrong. Christ lived a perfect life. When he was here on earth, he never sinned. I know that's hard for us to comprehend. But the Bible teaches that. It says even though he was tempted in a myriad of ways, just as we are, yet without what? Without sin. Christ was the perfect God-man. He endured everything to pay for our sin on Calvary. And the good news is, guess what? He just didn't die. The Bible says he was buried, which confirms his death. Roman soldiers, big stone put over the the cavern where he was placed in the tomb. But on the third day, beloved, guess what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know what happened. Those of you that know Christ know what happened. He lives. We don't serve a dead Savior. You can't go to the the tomb of Jesus and see his bones laid out there and his dead body mummified. No, he's not there. He is risen indeed. And that's when God cashed the check. That's when said, yep, his death is legitimate because he, he came out of the grave. He defeated death and sin. And by the way, Satan as well. We have too many Christians today running around on this earth trying to play with Satan. Casting out demons, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. It's like, you know, you need to be focused on God and his word. Satan is a defeated foe, beloved. He already lost. He may not understand that, but I read the end of the book. We win. 
if we're on the right team. And the way to get on the right team is to reach out and to trust Christ for your salvation. That's the call he's talking about. Matter of fact, in John 6, 44, it says, No one can come to me, Jesus says. You can't just waltz over to Jesus and say, Okay, I'm going to make you my Lord and Savior. How many times do we hear people say that? Just pray this prayer. Make Jesus your Lord and Savior. You don't need to make Jesus Lord. He already is Lord. All you have to do is recognize his lordship over your life. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. When you came to Christ, you didn't come of your own accord. You didn't come because, oh, you finally figured it out one day. No, the reason you came is because the Father drew you. The Father who set his love upon you even before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 says. He called you to be saved even before you were born. So it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with you. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with your skill or your ability to play the piano or talk or do any of that stuff. No, you know what? You're saved because God wanted to save you. He set his love upon you. And the illustration the Old Testament gives us is when he chose Israel to be his people. I mean, they weren't some great people. They were the opposite. They couldn't understand why God chose them. But in a very short period of time, their heads got pretty big. And today they go, we're the only people who are chosen to be God's people. Well, that's not true. Because they weren't good stewards of what God entrusted to them in his word. And rather than share it and explain it to others like they were supposed to do, what did they do? They hoarded it. They, they kept it to themselves. And God says, okay, you want to play that game? Fine. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to save these people who are Gentiles. And you're all going to be brought into the same church, <laughs> which for a Jewish person, you know, they, they can't even understand that. They can't comprehend that. But that's what God did. And he did it by his grace. He didn't do it because they were a mighty people or a strong people, just like he doesn't save us because we're, we're great people. He says, no, I chose the weak. I chose the silly things of this world to confound the wise. God's effectual call activates in time his election of the redeemed in eternity. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says again, he prays here, or he kind of points out this calling in verse 9 to 10 of 2 Timothy 1. He says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. This is a calling above any other calling. To be called by God as a Christian. To be committed to Christ and Christ alone is a holy calling. And he says, not because of our works, Verse 9, 2 Timothy 1, but because of his own purpose. And guess what? His own grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Wrap your mind around that one. I mean, I look around the room, some of you are pretty old. You're not, you're not old enough to be before the ages began. And yet that's when God set his love upon you. That's when God said, I'm going to 
save Steve. I'm going to save Ken. I'm going to save Chelly. I'm going to save whoever. Amazing. We haven't even taken our first breath yet. You say, well, how can that be? It's because God transcends time. God's not limited to time as we know it. He transcends time. There's no yesterday. There's no tomorrow. God sees the whole picture right now. And he says in verse 10, in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death, wiped it out, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See, that's the calling we're talking about. That's the calling Paul's talking to them about. It's a holy calling. It's a calling like no other. And that leads to a a walk that's worthy, and we went through the components of a worthy walk last week. And that leads us to our third point today. In verse 11 there, he says, To this end we always pray for you, the precept, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, the plan of God, and then we see the pleasure of God, and may fulfill every, look at this, resolve for good that he may fulfill every resolve for good. That word fulfill means to accomplish. It means to complete something. Don't you feel good when you're working on a project and finally you get it done? I mean, you know, the other day we were still putting away some Christmas stuff in our house. And my wife has been after me for a couple of weeks saying, these need to go up in the attic or these need to go, these boxes, you know. And I thought, oh. So I was down at the church and I thought, okay, I got, home, I got to get this stuff done. And it wasn't a lot, but it was just in the way. And it felt so good when I was able to sit back in my recliner and go, it's done. I got a couple months, well, several months left before I got to go up there and get it back down, which I'm not already looking forward to. But, you know, that's just the way it goes. But it, was, it felt so good to have it accomplished, to have it completed. That's that word, fulfillment. Pleru in the original. And then the word resolve. It could be translated purpose, really. God's purpose, his resolve. When you have resolved to do something, you have purpose, you have a plan to do it. And then he says, for good This points to moral excellency. That's really what it's talking about there. I mean, where do you find good today? Where do you find something that is good? Well, well, Jesus said this when basically asked the same question. Jesus said there is only one, one who is good. And that's who? That's God. That's God. I mean, you may be sitting here this morning in your comfortable little chair there thinking, hey, I came to church. I'm a pretty good person. No, you're not. No, you're not. If the person next to you could see what's going on in your mind and your heart right now, they'd probably move a couple seats away, to be honest with you. (laughs) Who knows? You're not a good person because there is no such thing as a good person. The Bible says, for all have what? Sinned. And fallen short of God's glory. That everybody, it doesn't say some, it says all have sinned. So when Jesus was asked that question, he said, hey, wait, there's only one who's good. There's only one who's good. So the one who has 
the completely pure, the completely good agenda in this world and in this life, there's only one, and that is who? That is God. That is God and God alone. And what, what he's saying here is, you know what, Thessalonians, I want you to give, I want God to give you everything that you desire, as long as it's good. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful that God doesn't give us what's not good? I mean, I, I, I'm just being honest. Sometimes I've prayed for things that, man, I'm glad that God didn't answer that prayer. <laughs> you know, it, when you see everything work out, man, what was I thinking? He's simply saying, you know what, I want to give, I want God to give you everything, Thessalonians, as long as it's good, by God's definition, not ours. That's a very powerful point. He, he wants them to be fulfilled in God's goodness. He wants their prayers to be answered. He wants their dreams to come true. He wants their desires to be fulfilled, their longings to be realized. But only if they're good by your definition, God. Not by their definition, but by yours. See, today, far too many people, and I would say even a lot of believers, a lot of Christians, believe that God is some angry old man up in heaven trying to rain on your parade. We always think he's trying to suck the fun out of life. He's trying to make our lives miserable. That is not true. That's, that's a lie from the enemy. As a matter of fact, let me share a couple of scriptures with you just quickly. Luke 13, 32. Luke 13, 32. The Lord says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's, listen, good pleasure. To give you the kingdom. Our Father's good pleasure. Or over in Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 and 10. Listen to this. This is amazing. Paul wrote this. Ephesians 1. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us. Who blessed us? God blessed us. In Christ, with every spiritual blessing, not some, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that's what we were just talking about, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to to the purpose, what's it say? Of his will. Of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have the redemption through his blood. That's the blood of Christ. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Sounds like a great plan to me. Where do I sign up? You sign up at the foot of the cross. You sign up when you acknowledge your sin before a holy God and you realize, I cannot fix this. This is too big for me, God. Here, you fix it for me. You know what God says? I already did. I already did. You trust in what I've done for you on the cross. There's too many people today trying to do, 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 do. They're trying to do everything religious, trying to earn God's favor. Doesn't work, my friend. The Bible says our our works are like filthy rags outside of Christ. Something you would throw in the trash. Think of the greatest work that you've done. Maybe you've given tons of money to a charity. Maybe you've helped hundreds and thousands of poor people, fed them. Maybe you've given away your... Who knows what you've done? It's all trash outside of Christ. doesn't mean a lick to God. Nothing. But when you put your faith and your trust in what Christ has done for you, wow, heaven opens up. And you see the glories of your salvation. Or in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes this, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. Listen. For his good, what? Pleasure. It's not about you. It's all about God. It's about Christ. And you see these kind of prayers even in the Old Testament in Psalm 21, verses 2 and 3. Listen to this. Psalm 21, verses 2 and 3. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich or good blessings. That's how God treats his people. Or in verse, 30, uh, thir- uh, verse 4 of Psalm 37, we know this, we've memorized this, but do we believe it? Delight yourself in the Lord and what? Finish it. He will give you the desires of your heart. Do we really believe that? Do we believe that we delight ourselves in the Lord and we go to God in prayer? He'll give us the desires of our heart? Why are our prayer meetings empty? I don't think we believe it. I don't think, I just don't believe we believe it. I mean, think about it. Will God give you everything your heart desires? That, that's pretty crazy. Think about it. Anything your heart desires... God will give you if you're delighting in him. If you're delighting in him. So when you pray, he'll give you what you pray for because you know what? It's consistent with his desire. It's, it's, your delight is in him. It's not in what you want. It's in what God wants for you. You're more concerned about what God wants for you than what you want. And when you delight in the Lord, you're really longing to know his will, to do his goodness. And you know what? God says, I'll fulfill that longing. I'll meet you right there. Or Psalm 138, verse 8, it says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. 
One translation says, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me today. Isn't that a glorious truth? I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to get up every morning and go, oh, well, what's the purpose of God today? Because I have to do, 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 do. No. All I have to do is get out of bed and go, hey, God, I'm here. I'm still breathing. (laughs) Uh, Haven't been ushered to glory yet. I'm still breathing. So what's on the agenda today, God? Just lead me through the day. Let it be a day of honoring to you in every way. Thought, deed, desire, whatever. Accomplish what concerns me today, Lord. Guess what? God will do that. God will do that. God's going to do what's on our agenda when our agenda is according to God's agenda. In Psalm 138, verse 1, the the reason he can say that, that the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me, it sounds pretty egotistical, really. But the the reason he can say that is because back in verse 1, listen what he says. The psalmist says in Psalm 138, verse 1, he says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart, full-blown commitment, my whole heart, before the gods I sing your praise. Small g. I'm praising God before these silly idols that people have. Verse 2, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. What's the psalmist saying? Hey, there's only a couple things I'm concerned about in this life. Exalting your name and your word, God. If I do that, then I I can sleep peacefully at night. Verse 3, on the day I called, guess what, God? You answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks. O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Verse 6, he says, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, verse 7, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. That's why the psalmist can say, you know what? Yeah, God's going to meet my desires today. God's going to accomplish what he has for me today. Or Psalm 145, verse 16, listen to this. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is not some Scrooge in heaven that's saying, hey, I'm not going to give you anything until you suffer. Suffer, suffer, suffer. I'm going to make you beg. He's not that kind of a God. That's a lie from the enemy. As a matter of fact, in James chapter 4, James points out in verse 2 and 3, he says, you do not have because guess what? You don't ask. You're not asking. Therefore, you don't have. And then in verse 3, he says, and those of you who do ask, you don't receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly. In other words, you're not asking according to God's purpose. You're asking according to your own purpose. You're asking according to your own agenda. You're asking according to your own passions, your own desires, as James says. 
You're more concerned with your own self-gratification than the glory of God. That's really what that's saying. And what Paul is saying is that, hey, you know what? God, give them everything their hearts desire when their heart desires what? What you desire, God. Bring them to a point where their desires become yours. I mean, that's a fulfilled life. You know, forget the whole best life now garbage that people are trying to sell you. That's ridiculous. I mean, if this is your best life now, give me a break. This is not our best life. Our best life is yet to come. So God's precept, God's plan, God's pleasure, God's power. Got to hurry up through these last few because we got some uh, corned beef. St. <laughs> Patty's Day over in, the, <laughs> over in the fellowship hall. God's power. And you're all welcome to come over and partake. He says, in every work of faith, listen, by his power. That word power there is dunamis. It means it's kind of, we get the word what? Dynamite from it. You're not talking just a tiny little firecracker, you know, one of those little popper cheap things they sell you on the 4th of July. I mean, you go up to Idaho, they have real fireworks on the 4th of July. I mean, you can buy them everywhere. I mean, they got these giant bottle, you know, things that go up in the air and it looks like a professional show in your backyard. It's talking about supernatural power and he prays for the work of faith by his power. See, he, he warns them, he wants them, I should say, to be a worthy people. We've talked about that. He wants them to be fulfilled. He wants them also to be powerful. And you could actually bring along the phrase, pray that our God may fulfill the work of faith with power. What is the work of faith? He's asking that God may accomplish the efforts powerfully. Their efforts. What are their efforts? They were already involved in the work of faith all the way back in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I already thank God for the, the work that God is doing through you. The work of faith. If there's a work of faith, guess what? There's also a faith that don't work. <laughs> there's the work of faith, but there's also a faith that doesn't work. Matter of fact, there's a faith that can be downright dead faith. You hear people all the time, oh, I have faith. Well, that's great, but what's your faith in? It kind of matters, doesn't it? Faith without works is what? Dead. You can sit here all day long and say, oh, I have faith, Steve. I have faith, Steve. How am I going to know if you have faith? I can't put you in front of a little x-ray machine. Oh, yeah, faith is in there. Yep, it's there. doesn't work that way. James points this out. James chapter 2, verse 17 to 26. He's very direct here. He says, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead. Faith without works is dead, being by itself. And then he has a little dialogue. He says, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, how are you going to show someone your faith? 
They can't see it. The only way you can show them your faith is through your works. And then he goes on and he describes that. Faith works. He talks about the body being dead without the spirit. So faith without works is dead. So they had a real saving faith and it showed up and guess what? It worked. It produced fruit. And Paul says, I thank God for the the work of faith that he's doing in and through you. I can see it. It's evidenced. But now, here in 2 Thessalonians, that's in 1 Thessalonians, here in 2 Thessalonians, he's praying, I'm asking God to make the work of faith even more powerful. In other words, I want to see an abundance of work going on in your life. That's what he's talking about. Not just this minimalistic attitude. Well, yeah, you know. It's like when sometimes people give you their testimony and they they start back when they were saved. And they talk about how glorious their salvation was. And that's about it. And that's a wonderful thing, don't get me wrong. But sometimes I want to say, and what's God done for you lately? Has God done anything since he saved you? Do you have any works in your life? Is, is God sanctifying you? Is God, is God allowing his holiness to be lived out through Christ in you, the hope of glory? Because if not, you might want to go back and examine this, quote, conversion that you had. Because everywhere in the Bible, when someone followed Christ, when someone came to Christ for salvation, I mean, their lives were, I mean, they were turned upside down. Just think of the, 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 the disciples. Here you had these fisher, fishermen, simple men, which means they didn't have a whole lot of income. They didn't have a whole lot of worth in society. They knew how to do one thing. They knew how to fish. And, and what did Jesus say? Oh, you want to follow me? Yeah, leave that behind. Forget about that. Forget about fishing. Some of you like to fish. Some of you like to hunt. Some of you like to play music, do different hobbies. What if Christ said to you, you know what? Yeah, forget about the music, Steve. Just follow me. Forget about pastoring Grace Bible Church, Steve. You just follow me. Could I do that? Could you do that? That's what they did. That's exactly what they did. Matthew, who was a tax collector, talking major buku bucks, unjustly, because <laughs> they rip people off. He's probably the most hated person in society. That's similar to what tax collectors are today, probably. But what did he do? He left it all. Why? Because God changed his life. God made him a new person. You could see the work of faith in their life. It changed. And Paul is saying, I thank God for the work of faith that's there. And I want it to be more powerful. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says this, For by grace you have been saved. He's telling the the church at Ephesus, you have been saved through what? Faith. But then he says this, but it's not your own doing. You didn't do this. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works 
so that you may run around boasting. But then he says this in verse 10, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Well, it's like Paul, you want to go, Paul, make up your mind. Good works, no good works, what's going on here? Which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. See, when you come to faith in Christ, God has already prepared good works for you to do. And they just come out of your life. God takes into consideration your personality, your spiritual giftedness, every, all your talents, your treasure, everything. And he says, okay, you know what? Here's what I got planned for you. And if, you, if you'll just quiet your heart and ask God, what do you want from me? He will show you. He will show you. And you can walk in these good works that God created for us beforehand that we should do them. But he says, I want them to be powerful. I mean, you think of the power of God, Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20. Listen to this, Ephesians 1, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness, his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. What's Paul saying? He's saying that same power that raised Christ out of, the, out of the grave is the same power that's working in you as a believer. That's, that's supernatural power. Or in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, and I also thank God constantly for this, Paul says, that when you receive the word of God, that's the first part, right? You hear the gospel. Some of you have maybe never heard the gospel before. Now you've heard it. And what does he say? Since you've heard, you've received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as to what it really is. What is it? It's the word of God, Paul says. Which is at work in you, believers. My question is, are you allowing the word of God to be at work in your life as a believer? As a non-believer here this morning, are you willing to say, hey, yeah, this this sounds like something I'm I'm interested in. I want to explore this more. Great. Talk to someone. Allow them to show you how powerful the word of God is. And then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 16, Paul says this, It's for this reason that I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Notice that they're named. God's not some distant power that doesn't know who you are and is not really concerned. No, he knows your name. The Bible even says he knows how many hairs you have on your head or the lack of them. Either way, he knows. Verse 16 of Ephesians 3, he says that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you, listen, to be strengthened with power. With power through his spirit in the inner being. I'm so tired of believers who at least are professing believers walking around the face of this earth looking like somebody just shot their best friend. Where's the power in that on display? Woe is me, I'm being persecuted, woe is me. God has tribulations and trials, that's all I have. Eeyore, Eeyore, Eeyore. Where's the joy in that? 
See, you're, you're misunderstanding God's work in your life, if that's your attitude. Or maybe you don't even know God, so you need to deal with that aspect of it. Well, the fifth thing here is God's purpose. God's purpose. He says, so that, in order that, that's a purpose clause in the original language. Why are you telling us all this, Paul, is really what you could say. And he says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. See, this is a question you have to walk away with. Is God, is the Lord Jesus Christ glorified in you? Not in our church, not in our country, in you as an individual. That is when, by God's power, God's people live a life worthy of his calling, and when they're resolved issues in goodness, they do what God wants them to do, and their faith results in works, then guess what? Then the Lord Jesus Christ, he himself is seen, and he is honored in them as his representatives here on earth. And they, through union with him, are seen in their true humanness as the image of God. God's purpose is that God be glorified through our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, so whether you eat or drink. And some of you are saying, hurry up, because that corned beef, beef is getting hungry. I'm getting hungry for that corned beef. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Listen, this is how broad this is. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, beloved. Our lives in the present prepare us, what? For the future. And in the future, the glory of God will be proclaimed through the redemption and the worthiness of his people. We will be his glory because we are co-heirs with him, we will also receive glory, sharing in the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see how Paul here, immediately after stating such a stark alternative between participation and non-participation in the glory of Christ, he goes on to pray through God's powerful work within these Thessalonian believers, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in them and they in him. That word glorified is the same word that's used also in verse 10. The glorification of Jesus in his people and their consistent, consequent Glorification are not a, a, a transformation which is entirely resolved, reserved for the last day. In other words, a lot of times we think of glorification as something that, well, that's in future, future, future. Well, it is a process. It's, it's happening now through our sanctification. We're becoming more and more like the Son of God each and every day. It has to begin now if it's to be brought to its proper end when Christ comes. That day will not suddenly reverse the process which we are going on now. Rather, it will confirm and it will complete the process 
Jesus taught this in the upper room. He prayed that he might be glorified by means of his death and his resurrection, and that his own people might see his glory in heaven, he said. But between those two ends, this is why he made an astonishing statement. He says, I am glorified, what? In them, for the time being. Christ isn't here on earth physically. He's in heaven. But guess who is here? We are here. And guess who lives in us? Christ lives in us. We are representatives of Christ. And lastly, it's through his provision, God's provision, grace, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God's unmerited favor that he bestows upon us. This amazing glorification can only take place through the grace of God. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's it's given to us as a gift. And grace and glory go together in Scripture. Wherever you see grace, you see glory. And wherever you see glory, it has to come through grace. Glory is the end, you could say. Grace is the means to the end. There can be no glory without grace. And in the end, my friend, we live, in a, we live in a crazy world today, do we not? I mean, everything is upside down. But guess what? You know what? I just keep on telling myself this because I know it to be true. God, not wicked people, will get the last word. God, not wicked people, will get the last word. And that's Paul's message to the Thessalonians. I mean, they're under heavy persecution. This small little church who... Paul only stayed a couple months maybe there. They came to Christ out of a pagan background, and all of a sudden he leaves, and they're left on their own. But guess what? God is working through them. They're a model church. In light of that truth, Paul didn't gloat about our future victory. He didn't bemoan the present circumstances. He didn't tell God to try to hurry up. You know, these poor people won't last too much longer. Hurry up. What did he do? He prayed. He prayed. He didn't try to get out of anything. Well, in response to this message of God's triumph over affliction, how God has won the battle in the end, we have to conclude when we're faced with pain as believers, when we're faced with difficulty... Our usual inclination, our natural inclination is to what? Try to pray it away. I do that. If something hurts, Lord, help this. <laughs> I want this to be gone. Right? God, take away the pain. Stop the suffering. End the trial. End the tribulation. Whatever it is. And yet, here's Paul. He loves these people, but he never prays that way. He doesn't pray to take away the Thessalonians' afflictions. How very different from our Typical prayer meetings, where we come to a prayer meeting and we have our list of things we need to be praying for. And it's all pretty much silly things, have to do with this world, have to do with our physical bodies, where we beg God to make it stop. Please, God, help us. Ask him for relief from the stress, from the strain, from the toil of life. See, instead, Paul doesn't do that. What does he do? He says, you know what? I want these afflicted believers to grow in their understanding 
and have a kingdom perspective. I want them to be made more holy through this suffering that they're going through. So I'm not going to ask God to take it away. I'm going to ask you to give them the power and the strength to endure it. Let's spend more time asking God how to grow us through the groaning. (laughs) Let's spend more time asking God how to purify us through the pain. Let's spend more time asking God how to sanctify us through our suffering. I'm not saying don't ever ask God to take something away. Paul did. But don't allow that to always be the focus. As with Paul, maybe God has a purpose in the pain. Maybe you need to wrap your arms around it rather than try to push it away. Perhaps our focus should be on gradual growth through endurance rather than immediate relief through rescue. To help us move out of the realm of the spectator and into the role of active participants in the things of God. Three things quickly when you pray. Be specific. Be specific. Specific prayers, guess what, are answered in specific ways. We're too general in our prayers. I remember as a child growing up, I'd say my Our Father and Hail Mary, and, and then I'd say, and God, just, just bless everyone in the world. Amen. Very general prayer. Take the word of God and pray his promises back to him. Work through passages of scripture from Genesis to Revelation or the Psalms or Proverbs or the prophets even prayerfully claiming the specific promises that God has in his word. Be specific in your prayers. Secondly, read God's kingdom into the situation of others. What do I mean by that? Look at what others are experiencing through kingdom eyes rather than just through trying to get relief for those people. Because remember, affliction is part of kingdom life. We should expect it. It's not abnormal. It's not as something strange is happening to us when we suffer for Christ. Matter of fact, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised in the, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But see, we don't hear that today in churches. We hear if you're suffering, there must be something wrong. You need to pray for deliverance. God wants you healthy and rich and whole. Read God's kingdom into the situation of others. And lastly, remember the ultimate goal. For the ultimate, the ultimate goal for every believer is to what? It's to glorify God. That we would live lives that are glorifying to God and that we would glorify God. Effective intercessory prayer is not necessarily praying for relief for the afflicted or even for removal of the affliction. It's praying purposefully in light of God's kingdom perspective. It's praying with an understanding that there is a a purpose to the pain sometimes. All times, really. Praying for the right things is inseparably linked to a holy life. John Owen, a godly Puritan man, wrote this, He who prays as he ought will endeavor to live as he prays. 
When we think of living our lives as Christians, I want to close with an illustration of really an organization in America that is really stitched in our history. It's the story of the Pony Express. The Pony Express was a private express company that carried mail by an organized relay of horseback riders. The eastern end was St. Joseph, Missouri. And on the western terminal was Sacramento, California. The cost of sending a letter by Pony Express back then was $2.50 an ounce. Not cheap. If the weather and the horses held out and the Indians held off, the letter would complete the entire 2,000-mile journey in about 10 days. That's how the report of Lincoln's inaugural address made it across the nation. The Pony Express was in operation only from April 3rd, 1860 until November 18th, 1861. Only 17 months. And the telegraph was invented and it completed the line between the two cities and the service was no longer needed. But being a rider for the Pony Express, you can imagine, was a tough job. You're expected to ride 75 to 100 miles a day, changing horses every 15 to 25 miles. So you're in a full-out sprint on these horses. Other than the mail, the only baggage you carried contained a few provisions including a kit of flour, cornmeal, and bacon. In case of danger, you also had a medical pack of turpentine, <laughs> borax, and cream of tartar. In order to travel light and to increase the speed in which they traveled and the mobility of the, the riders during India to Indian attacks, the men always rode in shirt sleeves, even in the fierce winter. Well, how would you recruit such volunteers for such a hazardous job, you ask? Well, in 1860, a San Francisco newspaper printed this ad for the Pony Express. Listen to this. Wanted. Young, skinny, wiry fellows. Not over 18. Must be expert rider. Willing to risk death. Daily. And at the end it said, Orphans preferred. <laughs> See, those were honest facts about the service required. But guess what? The Pony Express, they were lined up. Young men were lined up to get a job at the Pony Express. You know what? Like the Pony Express, serving God is really not a, a job for those who are just casually interested. It's not. It's a very costly service to be a believer. Matter of fact, he asks for your life. 
You forsake all. You take up your cross daily and you follow me. He asks for your service to him to become a priority, not a pastime, not something you do once a week, but the thing you do 24-7. I pray that we understand the commitment for which we were called. It's not for the lighthearted, but it's available to all who would forsake their own agenda and come to Christ willingly. Accept his forgiveness and allow him to rule and reign in your life. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this prescription for prayer by the Apostle Paul. Lord, it really does give us a taste of how we should be praying. And I'll just speak for myself. I come up far short so many times. Lord, give us a new vision for our prayer life. Give us a fresh start. Help us to pray for things that are meaningful to you, not just to us. Help us to set aside the idea that we just need deliverance from suffering and make the pain stop. Maybe your purpose is being carried out through our lives through the pain. And we don't see it in the end yet because we we can't understand even what awaits us in heaven yet. But truly it will be glorious. And truly, Lord, anything that's going on in our lives, if we're one of your children, is not by accident. You've allowed trials and tribulation and pain and suffering in the lives of your children for a purpose, and it's a good purpose. And so give us the faith to embrace it, not just to run from it, not to push it away. Make our faith grow more and more each and every day that we could be a powerful representative of your son here on this on this earth and lord if there's any here who've yet to put their faith or trust in you lord you're coming back soon and father when you come back it's 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 really too late at that point judgment will be unleashed on this earth as likes it's never seen before and father we thank you that you're coming back for those who put faith and trust in christ and They will be snatched away from this earth. And so, Lord, we pray, if there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that they would cry out to you this morning, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I understand that I have grieved a holy God who created me and loves me and wants to give me the very best. But my sin and my pride are in the way. Help me to die to myself and come to Christ. Help me to forsake all and meet you at the cross. Confess my sin. To acknowledge the ways in which I have sinned against you. I've done things that have offended you as a holy God and as my creator. And I pray that you would forgive me of my sin. That's a prayer that God will pray that he will honor when you pray it from a sincere heart. And he will change you. He will save you. He will give you new life in Christ. He will wipe your sins as far away as the east is from the west. And so we pray that this morning. And Father, we pray also that you would bless our time of fellowship and food across the way after our service. Lord, give us a good week. 
We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.